you don't, you don't want me to sing. Uh, <laughs> I once had uh, a child who are very honest tell me that I sing enthusiastically. <laughs> I, I was willing to take it. Um, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles or your Bible apps, um, we are going to be in the book of John this morning. And I am going to read from John 17, verses 1 to 5 to start. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And John chapter 12, so flip back just a couple of pages. John chapter 12, verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So in these two passages, John uses the word glory, or a version of it, nine times. Glory is a word that is used often throughout scripture, but not in our day-to-day -day lives. It's a word that perhaps we think we know what it means more than we actually know what it means. And as I thought about it, the only way that I really use it or might use it is um, the phrase, no guts, no glory. I am aware of the fact that I am getting older and that there is an ever-increasing ever increasing reality that some of the phrases I might use might not resonate with the younger generations. And so I was, as I was preparing this message, I asked Simon, my 12-year-old son, uh, what does no guts, no glory mean to you? He replied tongue-in-cheek, you can't be famous if you're dead. <laughs> it was prescient of him, but we've got a little ground to cover before we get there. So it's important to take note of the things that repeat in scripture. It's likely significant. But what do glory and being glorified actually mean? And I want to acknowledge that the Bible Project and their study of the word glory was foundational to where we're headed next. In Hebrew, the word most often translated to glory is kavod. Its most basic meaning is a physical heaviness or weight. If your backpack has a lot of kavod, then it's physically heavy. Or if you overindulged during the holidays, you might say you are carrying more kavod or need to lose a little kavod. At its most basic meaning, kavod simply meant a physical weight. Now, building on its most basic meaning, kavod could also mean the weightiness of an individual, metaphorically speaking. An individual's importance, their significance, their gravitas or reputation. Uh, last spring, I had the privilege of meeting a Canadian celebrity at a friend's party. Another mutual friend and I, wanting to meet him, discussed how we could initiate a conversation in a non-intrusive, non-awkward way. 
we could feel the weight of his reputation and status. When someone has kavod, we interact with them according to their significance, their importance, or their uh, position. Kavod can also mean the physical stuff that reflects or communicates an individual's importance. In 2 Kings 20 verse 13, Hezekiah shows the Babylonian envoys all that was in his storehouses. A more current example might be Cristiano Ronaldo and his extensive car collection, including five Ferraris and four Bugattis, Lamborghinis, McLarens, Rolls Royces, Mercedes, BMWs, Porsches, Maseratis, and the list goes on and on. For some of you, that made a lot more sense than for others. His possessions speak to his status, his wealth, and interests. In this sense, Kavad is a person's unique physical embodiment that demonstrates who they are and their importance and what they're about. In Psalm 19, we read that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Creation is God's kavod, the physical embodiment of his glory, which puts on display for me to see in nature God's character traits like creativity, power, generosity, strength, beauty, community, now, there is one thing that stands out in all creation as unique. Psalm 8, verse 5 says, You have made them, humans, a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory, kavod, and honor. In Genesis, it says, Let us make humankind in our image. Humans reflect and have capacity for God's attributes like nothing else in creation. We carry in us the Imago Dei, the image and imprint of God. We have borrowed or gifted Kavad. Often though, particularly in the church, we can have a very low view of humans as broken, depraved, and sinful, which are all true but not wholly true. Scripture points to a very high view of who we were meant to be, a little lower than the angels. We were made to steward what God had made. We were entrusted with creation. Humans have great capacity for goodness, for love, for generosity, creativity, friendship, compassion, peace. And when we see and experience glimpses of human flourishing, this is the kavod of God. We have the capacity to reflect God in a way that no other created thing does. But we have become tarnished dim reflections through our choices, starting in the Garden of Eden until this present moment. We vandalize the glory, the image we carry. Pete Grigg says the power to choose God's will instead of one's own personal preference is, according to scripture, the defining human opportunity. In the Garden of Eden, Eve and Adam chose to question God's character and intention and take control. Ever since, the opportunity to choose God's will over our own is continually on offer, but regularly rejected. We are invited to submit ourselves to God's goodness, to his wisdom, and his purposes. And when we choose not to, we become shadows of the glorious image that we were supposed to be. We can see this play out repeatedly in scripture. 
in particular with God's chosen people, the Israelites, whom he had established his covenant with. These people are to be holy and set apart. They are supposed to embody God's glory. In Genesis 18, we read that Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. The trouble is that the people's hearts are continually rebellious towards God. Though they are supposed to be a light of hope to the nations, they fail to keep their end of the covenant. But this isn't hopeless because God will intervene on behalf of not just the Israelites, but all people through his son, Jesus. Through Jesus, God would rescue the world and be that light to the nations. Where the people failed, God would raise up his own son. Jesus, as the true human, the fully human one, he was able to be all that God had intended for us. And he exchanges his life for our own through his suffering, death, and resurrection. When Paul writes that we all fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3, what he is saying is that we fail to be the version of ourselves that we were made for that we have capacity for as bearers of God's image. I recognize daily that I make minor choices that lead me to death rather than to life. Choices to harbor feelings of bitterness, to stay up just a bit longer to, to distract myself with mindless entertainment, the desire to be right over the desire to love. I think this is also what Paul was getting to in Romans 7:15 when he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. For what I want to do, or sorry, humans were made in the very image of God to be the embodiment of God's character and presence. And we have a sense, or a Peter tingle, if you're a fan of Spider-Man, that something isn't white isn't right. Do you remember the song by Switchfoot, Meant to Live, released in the early 2000s? The chorus goes, we were meant to live for so much more. Have we lost ourselves? Somewhere we live inside. I feel this acutely as a parent. There are times when I am full of patience, when I seek to understand, when I make space and offer grace, and I'm fully present with my kids. Then there are times when I speak harshly, am impatient, jump to conclusions, or feed feelings of competition rather than community. Sometimes I am a dim reflection of God's glory, and at other times I feel marred beyond recognition by my own capacity as an image bearer. Going back to our passages for this morning, how is it that Jesus is glorified? What is it that he must do for this to happen? And what I see in these passages, what I see in Jesus is a posture of submission and trust. Jesus is the true human that we are made to be but perpetually fail at. And what does Jesus do? Jesus, the Son, submits himself to the Father, 
trusting God's will and purposes and praying that God would glorify him. To be glorified, Jesus actually knows that he must first suffer and be put to death, experiencing the void of God's presence. In the other three Gospels, Jesus prays that this cup might pass him by. And of course this would be his prayer. Torture and murder aren't on our bucket lists. But not his own will, but God's will be done. As Jesus is telling Peter to put away his sword in John 18, verse 11, he reminds him, am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? And in John 12, 27, now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this very reason that I have come to this hour. Back in the very beginning of the book in John 1, verse 1, Jesus is identified as God's word, the logos. This Greek word has a rich history both in Greco-Roman thought and in Judaism. In Greek philosophy, logos could refer to divine reason, the force that brings unity and order out of chaos. In Judaism, God's word represented the dynamic power of God to accomplish his purpose and will. That Jesus is identified as God's word helps us to understand that he is God's agent of salvation and his self-revelation to human beings. In John 17, verse 4, Jesus says, I finished the work that you gave me to do. The purpose of Jesus' life was to live as the human we were meant to be but fail at being. Jesus took upon himself all of the consequences of our choices, all of the distortions that we carry as image bearers, all of the ways we fail to be human with one another, all of death and sin and brokenness. And by dying, the perfect Son of God is able to offer us life through his resurrection. Jesus' purpose was not to heal the sick or to make the blind see or to make the lame walk although these were all natural consequences of God's kingdom being established on earth. And to be clear, as followers of Jesus, we are to be working towards justice, healing, and right relationships within families, communities, and systems. Jesus's purpose was to embody the fullness of God, and in so doing, offer us fullness of life through himself, through his death and resurrection. This is good news. There is a beautiful phrase or concept that I have learned about in the past few years. It's this idea of being restoried. We all receive a story, have a story spoken into us or over us by people or circumstances or our own perceived self-determination. Our story is one that we have learned or adopted and that we repeat to ourselves over and over. Jesus offers us the possibility of a better story, not an easier story or a success story, but one that restores God's image, his kavod in us, a story that gives meaning to our suffering and offers us hope. Everything good in us and through us is a reflection of God. Jesus affirms this in verse 10 when he says, I have been glorified in them. But how is this possible? 
And if at this point you are beginning to feel discouraged or thinking that this is another bar that you just can't measure up to, or a list of behaviors and practices you have tried to do enough of and failed, but you're just so exhausted, or you're looking around comparing yourself with others, please press pause. Let's go back to verse 17, 3. How is this possible? And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, to know you. What strikes me is that this eternal life, life experiencing the fullness of God's presence, doesn't begin at the point of death. It begins now as we submit ourselves to Jesus and trust him. I heard a friend of mine once speak about being claimed by the promises of God. He challenged the people in the room that instead of viewing the promises and purposes of God from a self-absorbed position, where we apply God's promises to the promise and concerns of our lives, where in my own experience, we can be tempted to control and position ourselves and manipulate, what if we turned ourselves wholly towards Jesus, choosing in submission and trust to be swept up in the work of God in the world, cooperating with him as his spirit brings healing and life? Lent begins in 10 days. Lent is a season in the church calendar when we are invited to give something up. Not to self-flagellate or force suffering upon ourselves, but to set the conditions for growth to make space to take up things that offer us life, that help us to be fully human, to help restore God's kavod in us. So I have some packages of seeds that I have bought with the intention of starting inside before spring comes to get a head start on their growth. It's still a little early, but as of right now, uh, I haven't gotten out the dirt. The seeds are still in their packages. And if I never get around to it this spring, then these seeds are never going to grow because I haven't given them the conditions to get started. I believe that Jesus' invitation to us this morning is to set the conditions that allow him to work in our lives, to restore his kavod in us. And those conditions won't be exactly the same for each of us, and they will likely change from one season of our life to the next. God's invitation is not for us to do more, but it's to respond to his invitation to you to be present with him, showing up with our whole, messy, imperfect, not enough, or our put together, have all the answers working out my own salvation selves with trust and submission. It's easier to observe in my kids, but I know that I am influenced by the time I choose to spend my time with, the people that I allow to speak into my life, the people whose opinions I seek out and value. I am convinced that what I need is to be influenced more by Jesus. Hebrews 12.2 says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. 
This is my prayer. Jesus, help me help us to turn and return our eyes to you. Now, this is an individual's, or this invitation is to us as individuals and also as church communities. And I know that I am not a regular part of the expression of this church, um, but I still want to pose the question. What do you need to do to set the conditions for growth as a church community? How do you refocus your eyes on Jesus together? How do you become most fully human with one another? And how do you position yourselves before God together in trust and submission? And this is an invitation isn't a turning in on ourselves, a holy isolation, further establishing an us versus them mentality. We don't have to look very far around us to see how silos further break down relationships, families, and communities. Looking to Jesus, we see that he was wholly given over to the well-being of the people around him. The people who chose to engage him with faith experienced transformation. Bodies, relationships, and creation were transformed when they encountered the image of God in Jesus. So may we, following the example of Jesus through submission and trust, experience the restoration of God's glory in us so that others might see and know the fullness of life that Jesus offers.